Hey, I'm Jen Sui. I'm a certified life coach and soul whisperer, helping you unearth your true self and learn to embrace the human experience to have more ease, peace, and freedom in your life. Listen on to find out how. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome back to the Creating a Fantastical Life podcast. Today is day nine of 12 days of breakthroughs, and we have George Stiffman on. George Stiffman is a entrepreneur, evangelist of creationary plant-based cuisines, Chinese tofu master, and author of Broken Cuisine, which is coming out soon. He's revolutionizing the way that people perceive plant-based cuisine and is on a mission to heal the earth by healing our relationship with food. Thank you for joining me today, George. What a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jen. So George and I met in college at USC, freshman year. We were both vegan. And one of our mutual friends who we ended up, you know, becoming really good friends with as well, she was going out to a vegan restaurant. And we had both replied in this like vegan group uh, message or whatever on Facebook for USC students of like, yes, I want to go. And that's how we met. I found out that George speaks incredible Chinese, like much better than myself, um, has studied in China to like with with plant-based chefs and is just an overall incredible human being. And here we are today, like six years later or five years later, still friends. Um, so I really appreciate you being on here and letting the world see more of you. No, for sure. And I'm, it's like amazing that we're still close after all these years and still living in the same city and nearby. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this whole season, as people may know, is all about unbrainwashing yourself, undoing conditioning that we have been taught by society is just the truth. But we later find out is not and allowing us to live freely as our own selves. So I want to start by asking you, what is something that you were brainwashed to believe about yourself, other people, or the world around you that you just later found out was not true? So I, I think the anti-brainwashing stuff started early for me. Uh, my older sister, Jaina, who's a year and a half older than me, from kindergarten was already questioning her teachers at school, and especially at um, Hebrew school. Our family was Jewish, and so we would go on Sunday mornings to learn about the Torah and other Jewish traditions. And uh, Jaina pretty quickly was like, hi, you're telling me that God said all of these things that we have to do, but we're not doing any of them. You know, all these old laws. And then, you know, there's all these, whatever, these rules that just didn't make sense in today's era. And so, if, you know, the rules in the Bible don't make sense today. And the Bible was the word of God, then does God not make sense? Is some, there's something here that's in conflict. So that led Jaina to, I think, just fight back against authority a lot more from a young age. And that, that spread off on me. I think of the, over, during the last few years, uh, the biggest change in my thinking about the world has been starting to care about animal suffering, which, you know, grew up eating meat, Everyone in my family has always eaten meat. And one year I decided, hey, you know, maybe I don't need this stuff. You know, if, if chickens matter as much as my cat, then why would I why would I eat chickens? And started going down that rabbit hole. Oh, I love that. I love that your sister 
from such a young age was just like this is bullshit I sniff bullshit this ain't it <laughs> and for you saying that like yes you wouldn't eat your cat why would you eat a chicken a lot of people would might disagree with that what do you think is like the missing link with that yeah so I think there's a few links I mean, if you look at surveys, most people think in the States that animals should have protection from harm and from pain and mistreatment. You know, the vast majority of people agree with that. And, and that's not just urban liberals, that's folks who live, you know, rural Nebraska. But then I think there is this, you know, missing link that people really don't know how our food is raised. You know, most people, you know, again, say I would never buy factory farm meat, but then will say, oh, I think my meat's not factory farmed. So I think, I think that's one big thing. Another big thing is just humans are really good at living with contradictions. And so there's like, if I don't act the way I believe, uh, my brain will twist that into some narrative of finding reasons for that being. And until we actually sit and try to reflect on that, that dis cognitive dissonance, uh, we're like not, too often will actually try to overcome it. More specifically, that cognitive dissonance comes from, oh, you know, there's all this delicious meat. Oh, meat just comes from my, you know, my culture eats a lot of meat and my culture and my traditions are good. You know, there's things like, I think like some people have the notion that plant-based diets can't be healthy or aren't healthy generally. And I, I disagree with that, but I think all these little things added up, paint this picture in people's minds of like, ah, I'm just not certain about what this is or why it matters or even how to do it. Meat's been the way things have always been, you know, therefore like it's fine. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm kind of picking up from what you're saying is that there's almost three phases that people go through and like that you've gone through in this journey of uncovering what conditioning you have been you know, brought up with, especially around food and then undoing it. And it sounds like there's curiosity first of like, oh, questioning, is this actually true? Like, is meat good? Is Do I actually need meat? Is there a better way to eat? And then the critical thinking piece of let me gather all this information, find out the truth, and then like lowering your cognitive dissonance, actually seeing what is contradicting. And then this third piece of alignment, which I think you demonstrate so amazingly, of, of being congruent with who you say you are, what you believe in, what's important to you. And I think that's a piece that a lot of people also struggle with. So how have you seen in your journey of, of uncovering that cognitive dissonance and then doing the work to align yourself with what you say you're about? Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. I mean, I, I think with like, it can be really hard to change yourself um, when you're changing against the grain of society or your family, um, or even just the friends around you. And, you know, that, that, that process of change might involve like, you know, realignment of who you are and what you're up to. Um, but for me personally, since graduating college, I've been fortunate to be able to work on this issue of factory farming and find, you know, a very specific way to me about how I can contribute to that. And so even though there was that transition, I get so much meaning every day from, you know, thinking about these issues, trying to make a positive impact, you know, living with clarity about why I'm here on earth. Yeah. How did you do that? Like, was it just natural, like kind of innate to you that you've always kind of had that strong sense of 
purpose or morality or whatever what like whatever your guiding principle is which I would also love for you to expand on um or was that something that you had to cultivate I think I've always felt pretty driven towards um positive impact and my understanding of what positive impact means has definitely changed over time but you know from a young age I felt like seeing other people suffering in LA, for example, the homeless crisis is just horrible. You know, not enough public house, not enough affordable housing, not enough services to help homeless people get back on their feet. And, um, you know, one night I was out volunteering with a friend's, a friend's charity, passing out burritos in downtown LA to, to folks without a home. And I remember walking by, you know, and handing a burrito to this woman who looked like maybe a couple years older than me, sounded like she was new on the street, was just eternally grateful for something as simple as a burrito. And as, as, as we walked away, you know, we told her, have a good night, and then just walked away. And I remember thinking like, what is a, what is a good night mean? Who knows what her night's gonna be like? You know, maybe she'll be, you know, have a little bit of food, you know, she doesn't have warmth, she doesn't have safety, you know, what if there's, you know, like, God forbid, some, some guy comes by and rapes her. Um, and, and yet we, we just like our words, have a good night, is just kind of the end. And to me, that never was like an end. It was this, this reality that I just couldn't accept. And, you know, as to how maybe I developed that desire to change things. Growing up, I had a sense of justice, um, but also a sense of like empowerment. I think I, I saw that there were a lot of issues out there and that there are some solutions that we can implement to most of them. And maybe not entire solutions, but there are definitely ways we can tangibly make problems better. And so I think that combination of feeling like you know, I couldn't accept these problems as they were, seeing that there's ways to make them better. And then a frustration that adults around me and society at large didn't do as much as they could to implement these solutions. That resulted in frustration and like a really a strong passion to actually do something myself. Mm. I so much respect to that. And also, I think this part where you're making, this point that you're making about being empowered and cultivating that not maybe not even cultivating but but realizing that you have the ability to kind of control what you can control and you can actually make impact is really key because so many people especially when we look at veganism uh people say like even like with one person like how much can you really change and like plastic like oh like what can one person really do? even with voting like what does my one vote really do and they like stop themselves from even seeing that they have the sliver of power and it just negates to nothing like if you can't fully change something yourself then it's just not worth it then you just can't do anything so what I was hearing from you too is like when you started college and started working on the solutions there was so much of a focus on what you had control over and what you wanted to do to uh, do and how you could play a part in that instead of looking at okay well like just complaining about the big picture of how nothing's going to change, how people aren't doing anything or whatever. And while I think there's some understanding of 
it can just feel like a huge problem. It's just too big out of yourself, out of your scope that you can feel disempowered in it. How did you keep that like momentum almost of actually taking action? I think that the biggest factor in helping me stay motivated and take action was having other friends and a community who felt similarly around these issues. I think like the parts of my life when I felt most lonely was when I didn't really have that. And, you know, I think frustration can be helpful. Um, I think if frustration doesn't have a productive outlet, it can just turn into, you know, hopelessness or, you know, depression. And, you know, I see that happen a lot, um, you know, in the past to myself at times and to other people too. I think one community that's helped me a lot over the last couple of years, especially, has been the effective altruism community. And, um, you know, to those who aren't familiar, effective altruism or EA is about figuring out how we can use our time and resources as effectively as possible to make a positive change. And, you know, what that basically means is that a lot of problems, you know, exist out there and more than we could possibly solve with our own time. Um, and so if we're, you know, trying to be more rational, we can think I can do twice as much impact or 10 times as much impact if I, instead of focusing on something that's a smaller issue, focus on a bigger issue. Um, and so there's like a few kind of uh, criteria that a lot of, a lot of folks in the community will think, think about. You know, you have, we try to think about what issues are really big in scale, meaning there's a lot of suffering um, involved, you know, how tractable are these issues? So like, how much can we actually do to, to make them better? And then neglectedness, um, how, how much effort is already being put into solving these issues? And so there's a lot of issues that really are large in scale that have tractable solutions and that are really neglected, uh, meaning that there's a lot of uh, low hanging fruit of solutions that are probably available, but we haven't really like tried yet. And so finding a community like EA that was thinking in terms of, 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 of these things that was trying to quantify, you know, if we're trying to make animal lives better, how do you measure it? You know, how do you, how do you measure welfare? Um, you know, what's the benefit of an animal that's in a, you know, a chicken that's in a caged, uh, you know, that, that, that's cage free, you know, versus in a cage, you know, how much, whatever. And how, how do you compare these different things? So I, I got interested, you know, as I found others who were interested in, in factory farming issues became more and more motivated and educated about these topics because there was this other community here that I could learn from and work with. Yeah, okay. So definitely community is a huge part of your ability to stay grounded in, in what you wanna do and effective altruism, um, being able to have the resources to also help and create these changes is great. Tell, tell us more about those times where you did feel like no one around you supported you um, or like, I don't know, did you ever have any fear that like you would be shunned or like that people were going to um, say mean things to you, come after you? Because I think that's the thing that stops a lot of people from change is we can have a desire, but then, oh, we're going to lose friends over it, or people are going to judge us, or, you know, we're actually not going to be able to make such of a difference, or I'm not going to be able to stick with it, right? Tell me about your thoughts on that. Yeah. So to the second part of your question, 
about worrying, you know, did I, have I worried about people rejecting me or uh, saying bad things about me? Generally, no. My grandpa, before he died, would, would often talk about, you know, you can, you can be a renegade, but you kind of always have to be a renegade. Um, because, you know, if you one day show up at work and you're like, I'm doing things completely differently, your boss, your manager are going to look at you and say, what the heck is happening? But if you're consistently doing things your own way from, from the start, everyone already expects that of you. And so I think my friends and the people around me have always just accepted me for who I am and been supportive. There, there have though been times in my life when, you know, I have felt, you know, where, where it's been hard to, I've, I've had times in my life where it's been hard to stay motivated. And <laughs> so one, one time in my life when I felt especially, you know, lonely slash demotivated um, was when I was starting to study vegan Chinese food in, in China. Um, in high school, spent a summer living with a homestay family in the Northeast of China and the city of Tianjin. Was really interested in learning more about Chinese language and ended up on that, on that trip, just falling in love with, with Chinese food. Um, started realizing or started learning that there were a ton of, of plant-based options sprinkled throughout China became really interested in, in studying more of those and trying to raise awareness back home in the States. And after my first year of college and second year of college, I studied for a bit at Buddhist cooking school in China, which was just an incredible experience. And you know, one that I'll, I'll think highly of, fondly of forever. I think that process though, of you know, flying halfway across the world, studying this, these, these foods, was in some ways really isolating because the stuff I was studying wasn't mainstream in China. And so most of my friends there didn't quite understand what I was doing, didn't really value it, um, didn't see the need for it. And my friends back home also just kind of ha had a harder time seeing what was, was going on there. And so I felt like I wasn't being seen, I wasn't being heard, which isn't bad. I just felt isolated. What ended up helping to get over that was simply just sharing these things more with my friends around me, taking my Chinese friends out for food and like cooking for them, uh, or back in the States, throwing more dinner parties, you know, so, so things like that, I think, were the start of trying to share a bit more about, about what I was up to and, and with the whole vegan Chinese food stuff. And lately, it's been great, actually working on this tofu import business and this Chinese tofu cookbook because I've been able to actually share the fruits of what we've been working on with other people in the, in the vegan community and beyond. And it's been validating because a lot of people, even who aren't, aren't vegan, will look at, you know, look at our book and say, wow, I didn't realize there were so many tofus. I didn't realize, you know, this aspect of, of Chinese culture. And it's been like really validating to see that people actually care and can appreciate this stuff. Yeah, hearing how you felt alone and isolated for a little bit and finding that you can kind of create your own community or like you can 
show other people what you're about and like to see if they're receptive to it I think that switch is so key in allowing ourselves to just be who we are because it really is an allowance right like if we don't feel like we belong um, or we keep looking at how other people are different then it can make you almost like self-select out and then you're the one who's actually making yourself feel like you don't belong and I and you know create issues in that way what it sounded like for you you kind of allowed yourself to just open up and see what happens if you just share tofu and talk about tofu and do these things and that has led you to be where you are now and even reflecting on how you've said that you've kind of had this community of people and you've been lucky enough to have just that community for a while that has accepted for you for who you are supported you and what you were doing I think that is a testament to how you have been uh, where you're just kind of unapologetically yourself and like what your interests are at least and you're very like kind and compassionate and all these amazing qualities but I think it most importantly like you had a strong sense of who you were and that allows other people to just kind of attract in instead of what most people think of when they think of going on their own path or if you're struggling with finding a support system is how can I change or how do I have to be in order for other people to like me, for other people to accept me? It's kind of knowing who resonates with you and allowing them to come in and then leaving the people who don't. So I love I love hearing that side of your story. And now with what you're doing with the Chinese imports, um, tofu, tofu imports and also the Chinese cookbook, that you have something that you feel like you can share with the world and, and create impact that way. So let's talk about food. Let's talk about tofus. Why is tofu so interesting to you? Yeah. Um, so tofu is really interesting to me. Um, has been for a long time. I remember in high school, uh, I was playing on on the school tennis team and had you know a couple of friends on the team who who are Chinese American, love Chinese food, and one day my dad and I were eating at the Sichuan restaurant in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And those friends happened to be at the table next door. And so we went over to hang out and chat with them. And, you know, on in front of them, in front of Elliot, there was this cauldron of red, peppery, you know, bubbling tofu. And so, you know, I asked what it was and they were like, this is Mapo tofu. So it had this like really cool image from the get-go. And when I finally tried it, was just blown away by yeah, this incredible tofu dish. If you haven't had Mapo tofu, it's one of the signature Sichuanese Chinese dishes that's made from a fermented chili bean paste that's spicy and savory. And that's, you know, stir-fried with some fermented soybeans, garlic, maybe a little bit of ginger add in some tofu cubes that can either be really uh, silky and tender, or you can actually have firmer tofu too. And you have this, this mix of flavors from that kind of beany tofu-ness to the, you know, the chili bean paste, the black bean, or the fermented bean, to the oily sort of like mouthfeel that, that's a little bit slippery, to the cornstarch stick and sauce that just hugs the tofu. And so I was just blown away by this dish. And um, when I went plant-based and, and spent that first summer in China was like, wow, you know, I thought tofu was this firm white block, 
there's actually all these other types. It turns out that there's over 20 types of to tofus. Some of them are really bready, um, like have a nice crumb to them. Some of them taste like aged cheese. Some of them have the texture of a fish cake that's like really dense when, when you get them, but that after cooking actually opens up into this really luscious, creamy, you know, tofu. I mean, it's like, you know, there are types of tofu that bake up like pastry crust. And it's, it's kind of mind boggling and it's you know, all made from this humble soybean. In my mind, plant-based cooking these days tends to fall into three main categories. You have your subtractive plant-based foods. This is like if you took a meat dish at your, at your favorite restaurant and just took out the meat. You also have substitutive plant-based foods where you will replace the meat with a plant-based meat. And, you know, I think the subtractive stuff, most people find that disinteresting. It's kind of just lesser. I think the substitutive stuff, we're getting better alternatives, but I think we're still many years, if not decades away from having great alternatives across all the different types of meat and seafood and eggs and dairy. And so we're still not there yet. Uh, the third type of plant-based food is traditional. So things like, you know, peanut butter and jelly or chana masala or foods that just never had meat in them. Traditional foods were what I ended up gravitating towards as I went plant-based. But I think there's a lot of room for a fourth category and that's creation-based foods. Just as all our favorite foods were once created, you know, whether that's 50 years ago or 10 years ago or 5,000 years ago, we can create new foods. And there's, you know, some really easy ways to do that. I think the easiest way is by having cultural dialogue between, you know, cultures that have different sorts of ingredients or flavorings and incorporating Chinese tofus with all these interesting properties into other cuisines you know, like Italian or Mexican or Ghanaian, it doesn't matter. I think there's a lot of room to create all new foods through that process. So I think of tofu, you know, lo love it all, love the Chinese stuff, love the non-Chinese other Asian stuff. Um, and I'm really excited to see it more in, in Western cooking styles too. No, same. And you've opened my mind up a lot to what tofu can do. And I also share the same love for mapa tofu. It's just great. People should go get that at your local Chinese place, check your reviews. <laughs> but it's also really easy to make. So when you talk about creationary foods, is this like what we think of when we think of fusion foods, like tacos that are with chana masala or like a, I don't know, I had a I had a mapo tofu taco from a food truck here in LA once. And I was like, ah, wait, this is actually delicious. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about fusion or when you talk about creationary foods or is it kind of slightly different? I think of fusion as slightly different. And the difference is, you know, for fusion foods, what tends to happen is you take one element from one cuisine and then, you know, whether that's a flavoring or even just an ingredient and basically copy and paste it into another cuisine and cook it the exact same way. You know, you can have like, yeah, mapo tofu tacos or, you know, Kung Pao cauliflower or something. You know, that, 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 that seems very fusion-y to me. What I'm, what I'm talking more about is 
like backing up and saying, you know, if we're going to try to inc incorporate new ingredients into other cuisines, um, like how can we build new foods from these things, not just substitute them in for existing uses? And that process involves looking at ingredients and saying, what are its strengths? So if you have one type of tofu that has this really interesting fish cake-like texture, but that can become really silky, well, how do we build around that? And I, I think, you know, sometimes that means just throwing it in as like a, your, your protein in a, in a standard entree, but, but generally that's not the case. Can you give people and, some examples of, of creationary foods that you created that may or may not be in the cookbook? <laughs> yeah, so for Broken Cuisine, our, our book, I got to work with a couple really awesome chefs who created all sorts of interesting dishes. You know, Chef Vanessa Lauren created this uh, apple whiskey tart, like that uses a type of pressed tofu in slice form. So you have uh, uh, coconut dulce de leche caramel, you know, really nice uh, flaky tart shell. And then on top of that, we have slices of apple um, and this like thinly sliced tofu that has a wintry spiced flavor. Kind of hard to describe, I feel like, just over 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 chat. Um, but you know how how is that possible? You know, no one ever makes like meat pie that way or bean pie that way. It's just tofu and the specific type of pressed tofu had the perfect characteristics to match with that. Um, that's incredible. Or another example that's maybe a little bit easier is there's a type of tofu called yuba or tofu skin and it's super, super thin. It has this elastic cohesive texture. And, you know, we, in, in our book, we used it as a wrap for other veggies and other tofu and steamed it. Kind of like playing off the idea of empapillot, which is a, a wax paper wrap that's baked and steamed, often filled with fish or, and, and herbs. We took this other tofu and, and used it in a similar way, but again, it's a different sort of dish. So it's really doing something that just that yuba or tofu skin could do. You know, it's it's. I think it's a lot harder to come up with new uses like this than just fusing one aspect of different cuisines. But my hope is that it allows people to appreciate the ingredients more because we're not comparing it to anything else. We're not saying, oh, is this as good as, is this Kung Pao cauliflower as good as Kung Pao chicken? You know, does it have the right texture and, you know, flavors? And no, I mean, we're just saying, hey, here's this new dish. Just yeah. uh, enjoy it. And if, and if people like it, then, okay, great. People can eat more of it, but they're more likely to like it, I think. Yeah, it's kind of like the Krona where like the Krona is its own thing but it's a fusion of the of the croissant and the donut, but it's not like a donut with a croissant on top or something like that. It's like a literally new dish and it has a different texture, a different flavor, whatever it is. And I know you made um, these incredible cannolis, but the shell was made out of yuba, what you're talking about. And you even the, the cream had tofu in it and it was amazing, just phenomenal. So... I mean, whenever the, the cookbook does come out, like I hope people can check it out and, and your links will be in the show notes as well because I know you have like a newsletter that people can stay updated on to get updates on the book. You also have some free recipes already 
that are out. So people can check that out if they're interested. Um, tell me what you see as the biggest problem with our food and culture or like food culture that you see in the Western world or even perhaps expanding across the world that is stopping people from being able to eat in this new way that is, I guess, like more modernized and that really is a response to also what we know now in science about health, about our bodies, about how our bodies actually don't respond well to a lot of things like meat and dairy and also a response to the environment with climate change and the world just going kaput on us. Tell us how all of that fits in and, and what you see as the problems are and also solutions. I think the biggest problem that's stopping people from eating more plants is that people just don't find the plant-based options around us as tasty as meat. So you have you know, a chunk of consumers who are really just looking for convenience when they're eating. And if you can get a vegan burger that's almost at, oh, you know, basically as good as the original and it costs the same or less and it's, it's accessible, well, great. You know, you have a perfect product market fit for that. But if you're expanding beyond that, a big chunk of Americans care a lot more about different aspects of their food. And, you know, that might include taste, but it also includes ideas about health and processing. You know, a lot of chefs, especially, care that they're using fresh or local produce uh, or, or, or meat and dairy. And they, they go out on a limb to find that perfect source that matches their needs. And so far, besides the meat, plant-based meats, which I, you know, I personally love, but again, don't really appeal enough to this other demographic of foodies and chefs. You know, for these foodies and chefs, there aren't many other plant-based proteins that we can use. You know, I think there's a little bit of, of firm tofu and soft tofu and, 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 and that kind of stuff. There's a little bit of tempeh a little bit of seitan, and obviously beans, which have been around forever. But, but I still think that these ingredients right now just aren't quite as functional as, as a cow, which can be cooked up in a million ways. So I think if we had more plant-based proteins that could be center of plate, that have really diverse uses, that would be really good. I think in terms of getting there, if we had more chefs really buy into this idea that we should eat more plants, not necessarily that we should be all vegan, but even if we just had 10% of chefs say, hey, I want to actually take my time and, and talents to actually try to make this issue better. I think we would very quickly have much tastier plant-based options. What came to mind when you were speaking on just the availability of good vegan food and good plant-based foods, good you know, creationary foods, especially when it comes to tofu, is also accessibility, which I know that you're working on bringing these different forms of tofu that go beyond just like the firm and soft and extra firm tofu that you might find at Ralph's or Trader Joe's or, you know, even like Whole Foods where they have some more like in very interesting types of tofus and stuff, but making it more mainstream. And, you know, we we've talked about food deserts and how just the access to normal food is already and normal healthy foods is already such a challenge but tofu especially and not having the knowledge around how to cook it as like an individual how can we start to kind of expand our horizons and allow ourselves to you know experiment that and access those things yeah and 
I, your point was great too about access and affordability that definitely needs to be figured out and unfortunately just it's it's really expensive to run restaurants and i think a lot of vegan restaurants because a lot of vegans tend to be higher income just cater to that demographic and and you know so so prices are you're eating out for for certain types of vegan food just may not be the cheapest options or most affordable um, to a lot of people. And, you know, I think that all being said, though, there are a lot of ways to, to stay on a budget eating mostly plants. I think like ways that we can help improve accessibility and affordability. There's, first of all, having more affordable proteins and highlighting those and celebrating those. You know, plant-based meats are great and they're getting better. Um, but they're still just a little bit too expensive. And I think tofu's fill that, you know, more affordable need quite well. Being really interested in, in creating more partnerships between like vegans and non-vegan chefs um, and non-vegan chefs who are cooking different sorts of cuisines. I mean, it, I, I, I love acai bowls. You know, I love, I love vegan smoothie stuff. Um, I love, you know, I love grain bowls and it'd be great to have more of this sort of Cali, LA style food everywhere. But I think more than that, we also need different cuisines to start thinking about how can we create new plant-based options within our cuisines? Uh, because people, you know, eat all kinds of foods, have all kinds of food flavor preferences, and we need to be more fine-tuned fine and targeting you know, creating like really appealing options to different sorts of people and flavor preferences and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that tends to start with, you know, having, again, I guess I'm going back to the same two things. It's having really great tools that are culinary versatile, that are affordable, you know, that are healthy, and then working with chefs within different communities to, to find and create options that are great for their, you know, their customers and their, their, their people. So let's talk about mindset a little bit about the individual because because in order to create change right the desire has to kind of be there first and then we have to figure out how can we actually implement these solutions so let's talk about the traditional tofus that you typically can find in like most grocery stores like the firm tofu the soft tofu the extra firm tofu and how it's just like a plain block right or even beans how can people tap into their resourcefulness to actually like want to use those things? And also, do you have any tips on how to make them delicious and, you know, like change, change people's minds about tofu? Like, yeah. So, you know, I love firm tofu. I love soft tofu, silken tofu, all that stuff. I think the easiest way of finding great ways to use them is by following some of the Asian American food bloggers on Instagram and TikTok. Hannah Cheth, is a really, really great one. She's a professional chef who trained in at the Guangzhou Vegetarian Cooking School and worked for a while at a variety of, of, of Chinese restaurants and Taiwanese restaurants in the States. Her, her book, The Vegan Chinese Kitchen is, is a great primer. And she also has a lot of stuff on her Instagram. Uh, and there's there's other chefs too out there. Um, you know, there's, there's a, 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 like a more and more by the day so she's the one I'm most familiar with in terms of Chinese cooking. Uh, but there's also, again, outside of Chinese cooking a lot. 
Yeah, there's also folks like Woon Hung. Yeah, do you have any favorite bloggers? Actually, for me, I think when I first started, I, I was looking at bloggers and stuff, but what I found was one, I was like a college student that was stuck on time and also sometimes just lazy and didn't want to go to the grocery store and get all these things. <laughs> um, and I also didn't have a car at the time, so I couldn't go to like my Chinese grocery store <laughs> that was many miles away. And I think I just, I stuck with like the first, the few things that I knew how, and I used to make chicken a lot. It was, you no, know, it was, I think it was like, just like a honey sriracha chicken. And it was a really simple thing. It had like two, three, like mar marinating ingredients. And so I basically just transferred that over to tofu. And I was like, well, it needs salt. So I used soy sauce and I was just soy sauce, agave instead of honey and sriracha. And I marinated that and cooked it up. And that was like my thing. It was delicious. So I think that's another way for like people to kind of look into and follow their curiosity is what are you currently eating? What do you really like now? And where do you, how, how can you just substitute those ingredients? Like start with a substitution, get into creationary later and play with it, especially because, you know, if you don't want to waste food or like you're afraid of not liking something, if you stick to the flavors that you know you like, then chances are you will probably like what you create with tofu because tofu is a sponge, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it's a, a good point. I think starting with something familiar and finding your gateway drug, it, it really helps to, if you can, invest a little bit of time up front if you're trying to explore tofu and just find a few things that you really like. Um, you know, maybe your first dish or two or three aren't gonna be to your taste, but if you find it on the fourth, well, then you have a fourth dish you have one dish you can use for, you know, a long time. Um, I think general tofu advice too, you know, if you're cooking firm tofu, like you said, Jen, it needs salt. Uh, and because it has so much water as well, the flavor can be a little dilute in there. So even just, if you're, if you're going to cook your firm tofu however you want, even just blanching it, boiling it for like two, three minutes in salty water, like pasta water, literally just salt water and uh, tofu cubes. I mean, it goes a long way, but yeah, there's tons of, tons of little tips you can find online too for, for great ways to flavor it. And yeah. Yeah. Just be resourceful people like, go oh, just Google things. Google has the answers and then pick one. Don't make it complicated for yourself. So Let's shift a little bit to talk about your personal journey again, because I know you've been on this whole personal growth like thing for a while. Uh, you've been reading at Cartol, you know, we've talked about spirituality and just a lot of big life topics. And some of the best advice that you've come across is if you turn every failure into wisdom, you can't lose. And tell me more about that for you, how you kind of came across it and how you've been implementing that. Yeah, there's this idea that I try to live by as much as I can. And that's that at any moment, I assume I'm going to go through the same moment a thousand times in the future where I think I'm, you know, maybe going to go through, maybe not a thousand, maybe 10, maybe a hundred, but I'm going to go through more podcast interviews in my life. I'm going to go through, cook more dishes in my life and, you know, going to meet more friends and, you know, meet, uh, have more job opportunities and 
what that does is it's liberating because the existential nature of of having to be perfect at every single second just goes away. If this interview doesn't go well, well, I'll do better next time. And figuring out, you know, what is going well, what isn't, you know, using that, those, those failures or those, um, you know, moments where you don't really do exactly like you, what you wanted, um, use it as a blessing and, and just find ways to, to learn from it. Yeah. Okay. I really want to bring this point up because viewers who are, or people who are just listening can't see your face. And George is a cis white male. <laughs> and we shit out cis white males quite a lot sometimes because of the patriarchy, misogyny, racism, sexism, all these things that have created other layers of social conditioning. And something that just it kept coming up is kind of this idea of like how almost like how natural it has been for you to feel like you can belong and you have this power to create change right um and now kind of touching upon that even if you fail you will probably still get another opportunity and I know you're also like just super aware of your social standings privileges and otherwise and when we've had conversations about that but for people who are listening who might feel like they are in a quote disadvantaged category or you know have these other layers that are stopping them from feeling like they actually will have another opportunity what I really want to bring the perspective to is that chances are you'll also probably be able to create another opportunity now the reason why having that belief before you have the evidence for it is so powerful is because that is going to be what attracts it in right and it allows you to not stress out not be not have all this pressure on yourself and whatnot like there are certain privileges that you can create for yourself and also being able to have just that perspective that if you do fail if you do the wrong thing if you feel like you said something stupid or whatever then there's a learning there from there that's going to allow you to grow and evolve. Like no one is just stuck where they are. That's not how life has been created. And obviously there's all these social um, structures and oppressions that are going on in play. But in terms of, again, looking at what you can control for your own life, instead of focusing on how the system's fucked up or how whatever's fucked up, how the matrix is fucked up, like, yes, okay, and you still have control over you, right? So what are you going to do about it? Anything you want to add to that, George? Yeah, that's a great point, Jen. I mean, and I don't, I don't mean to, to come out and say, oh, we can solve all our problems and, you know, we're going to get a million chances to, yeah, I mean, I, I, totally not always true. And um, definitely people start from a different place. And I think this is more for me, I, I try to use it as a guiding light when I can. And you know, oftentimes I'm failing at that and I'm still discouraged and I still feel, I get helpless too. I feel helpless at, at times. And, but I, I find that like, if I can try to maintain slight, slightly more optimism around at least my failures, I just feel like it's easier to, to keep going. It's so important no matter what we're doing to have a motivation to keep going. Because otherwise, you know, especially if you're doing entrepreneurship, you're trying to do your own thing, like that's the fuel, you know? A hundred percent. And that actually leads into the second thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is the worst piece of advice that you've ever come across, which you said, if it hasn't happened yet, it's probably not possible. 
Tell us about that. Uh, I just I just hate that advice, and it's it's so common. I I feel like adults. Just I feel like I say adults. I'm an adult now, but <laughs> uh, just that generation, you know. Where have you heard that in? Like, what context did you hear that in? So, all sorts of contexts. Um, I guess in the business world, in the startup world, there's kind of like maybe two ideologies that people tend to fall into. And this is really broad generalization. Um, but there's the sorts of businesses that are like, figure out what the other person did and copy them and then just change a few things and make it a little bit better. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, dot-com businesses, folks like Toby Robbins, uh, Russell Brunson, they promote this sort of entrepreneurship quite a lot. And I think a corollary, you know, the, the, the flip side is like, you know, find some jobs to be filled of, of potential customers that no one has actually successfully filled and build a product around that. Um, that's more like the Clayton Christensen, like disruptive innovation model of startups. And you know, again, very broad brushstrokes, but I think a lot of people tend to fall into the camp of believing that we should tend to focus on the first model of like, you know, figure out what's worked for others and replicate it. You know, that, 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 that's like similar for, you know, parenting. Was this scene kind of like in dreams? Like, cause the way that I kind of hear that is if for example or like veganism right and the world can be more plant like earth friendly and people can eat more plant friendly but we look look around everyone still thinks like steak is the most like ooh steakhouse like it's super expensive super fancy and then like lentils lentils are like peasant food right and it's like well if the world could actually change then it would have happened already and like if it hasn't then it's not possible is it like that yeah no you explained it like perfectly yeah 100 percent. and i think you know people who are older tell that to young people all the time like hey if this hasn't been done before it's probably not possible and i think it just crushes a lot of dreams mm-hmm. have you seen this in yourself like what was there like a dream that you had that people tried to squash or did squash because they kind of convinced you, brainwashed you into believing, no, that's not possible. And there's no evidence for it. Yeah. So, I mean, all all sorts of things. I mean, you think of like trying to promote vegan Chinese food, food more in the States. You know, a lot of people look at that and say, oh, well, there's all these other people who are also trying to promote vegan Chinese food. You know, folks like Hannah Che and others. And vegan Chinese food still isn't like a really big popular thing here. Clearly there's been effort and it's still not working. And, you know, I think that's fair. I think, I think on one level you could say it's hard to popularize vegan Chinese food in the States. It's, it's genuinely difficult. And there's a lot of ways that haven't been super effective or maybe they are effective, maybe they're just slow. But then I think there's the other angle. It's like, if you dig deeper and say, you know, well, what, what did those methods try? You know, what, what are the barriers there? You know, what's stopping these things from becoming more popular? And then you just break that down and ask why a million times. And, you know, you might find one hypothesis and then you, you test that and then that works or it doesn't. And then like, it just seems, it seems like too broad brushstroke. Um, so I guess in terms of my own career, you know, options, I think, I think that's been one, one example. Yeah. So there's also negative examples. 
for example, folks in the EA community tend to worry about issues like animal suffering and factory farming, as well as global poverty and, and other really concrete issues today. But a lot of people also worry that there's, from all these new emerging technologies that are becoming more and more powerful, things like nuclear weapons, but you know, beyond nuclear weapons now towards autonomous weapons empowered by AI, to just like generally very powerful AI, to bioengineering that can allow people to essentially like engineer a pathogen, you know, a virus that's like programmed to be super lethal and super contagious. There's a lot of emerging technologies that seem really risky. And I think like the EA community tends to think about a lot about, you know, how can we reduce the risk that these technologies go really wrong? And so a lot of people looking in from outside might say, you know, when was the last time a new technology caused a lot of, 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 of havoc? Because we have, don't have a clear example of a past technology being super destructive, we shouldn't be as worried about new technologies. That's an example as well. Um, whereas the way I look at it is, you know, the past trends matter a lot as the starting off point, but then we need to update our thinking based on the other context of the topic. And, and sometimes just that general trend line of history just doesn't, doesn't quite cut it with enough detail. Mm, yeah, so you're really seeing those two sides of the coins, like, because in terms of this advice, the way that I think also kind of comes through individually is like, okay, if you don't have evidence that you can do something in your past, that means you can't do it. And a lot of people have this idea, like, they, I can't do it because I haven't been able to do it. Even people who, if you think about, maybe people have tried going vegan or people have tried, you know, going on a new diet or going through a new career and whatever. And they're like, well, I can't do it. And they have this fear because they don't have evidence for it, right? And then on the flip side, if you believe you can, then you can do it. You know, kind of what you're saying is like, well, if you're worried about something that's going to happen, then like it makes it really real. And people can create so much anxiety for themselves in thinking about future problems that aren't even the thing yet. Like if you're worried about paying taxes on a million dollars because you want to make a million dollars in your business and you're literally just starting and you're stressed out about it, it's like you have don't even have to worry about that. You are not even close there yet. Like chill, right? And um, people who want to be on social media or whatever and go vegan. Like, what if I get all these hate comments? What if I don't have any good B12 and like, or, you know, and B12 deficient or create these issues? It's, it's like thinking too far ahead for your own good where you're only creating anxiety instead of helping you provide information for how you want to live now. Yeah, Jen, I think you just explained my point that so much better. <laughs> you totally just nailed it. Yeah. 100%. I know. I, well, I'm, I'm glad I can help articulate. So I guess let's go ahead and kind of wrap up our conversation. It, was there one final takeaway that you want the audience to leave with in terms of how they can kind of follow their own intuitive truths and if they feel something's off listen to that or if they feel like they want to do something listen to that and and not be afraid to follow the path that they want to go after yeah i mean i think following your intuitions is really important because 
your intuitions often are what allow you to be curious. And no matter what you do, if you're not staying curious and excited about it, you're not going to be learning efficiently. You're not going to be growing as much as you can. And so I think like you just kind of have to strike a balance between, all right, I have this intuition. I want to go for it. I'm interested in this in, 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 in this project or this career. And I think being really cognizant about, about grounding that intuition then in tests of like, how can you, you know, make sure that is right, or that is the best option for you and, and finding ways to, to, you know, test things out and um, get feedback from the people that you trust. And yeah, I feel like that's very general though. I, I wonder if there's something more specific. That's okay. I think, you know, at the heart of it, what I was taking away was like this ability to validate your own truths. And that's going to give you that, that juice, that energy to go for it. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, George, where can people find out, you know, more about you, get your cookbook, get updates, get tofu recipes. Yeah, um, the best way to follow me and, and what I'm up to is on georgestiffman.com. That's my personal website. I have a mailing list. You can sign up for that. If you want to check out the book that I'm writing right now, uh, that's brokencuisine.com. Just those two words, broken and cuisine, uh, put together. And um, you can also find me on social media at MSG is vegan. That's MSG, the seasoning. Is um, <laughs> vegan. Is <laughs> vegan. I love, I love your social media account. It's great. And all the links for that will be, will be down below too. Okay, yeah. well, that's everything, friend. Thanks so much for joining and we will see you in the next one.